This morning, I invite us to um, pick up where we left off with Barry last Sunday. I'd like us to consider all that we've been given, all the gifts, all the graces, all the pearls of great price, all the treasures discovered with just a little digging, all those silvery, squirming fish gathered into our nets beyond counting. With Isaiah on the one side and Paul on the other and Jesus himself standing in the middle and working a miracle, each of them witnesses to all that God has given to us, each of them offering a pastoral word or a prophetic word or maybe both at once, calling us to consider all that we've been given, to consider and, as Barry called us to do last week, to place all of our eggs in one basket, to place our lives in God's hands, in the hands of the giver of all good things, to set aside every doubt and believe, to believe and then live as if it were so. Isaiah reminds the people of all of God's promises. He invites them to come and drink, to come and eat, to come and see. Gather at the table. Be filled with God's goodness. Stop spending your days working for things that don't last, that don't matter, that don't count. All that you need has already been given. God has made a promise, and that promise is a forever promise and will not be broken. A promise made to Israel, but with the whole world in mind. As Israel gathers in faith around the table set for them by the Lord, all those other hungry, thirsty, lost, and lonely people will gather around too. Nations long considered enemies of Israel will come. And nations nobody's ever even heard of will come. All drawn to the feast already given. All drawn to the banquet table already spread. And all because the Lord their God, the Holy One of Israel. And centuries later, Paul bemoans the fact that his people, the Jews, a people to whom so much had been given, have failed to believe that God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the promises and the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and from them the Messiah, all of it given freely. One great big promise extended from generation to generation and all culminating in the coming of Jesus and so many of his fellow Jews, according to the flesh, fail to see, they fail to believe, they fail to place their trust in this last best saving grace. And that breaks Paul's heart. And then there's Jesus, the embodiment of the promises described by Isaiah and the graces named by Paul, taking some bread and some fish and fashioning a meal for thousands. In his action, we hear echoes of the prophet calling all to come and be filled at the Lord's table. In his action, we see some sign, not proof because proof is not needed, but a sign, a sign that the Messiah has come. The hungry are fed, fed by the hand of Jesus, and we catch a glimpse of what God is up to. The reign of God has come. Give us this day our daily bread. On earth as it is in heaven, the hungry are fed, the promises fulfilled, embodied, incarnated, the word made flesh. And we hear Isaiah calling us to come and be filled. And we hear Paul crying over a people who fail to see what they've been given. And we see Jesus blessing the bread and offering it to all who are hungry. I'd like us to hold these three witnesses uh, together this morning for a little while. The prophetic call to enter fully into all that God has promised. The pastoral call to wake up and remember all that we've been promised. And the image of Jesus of Nazareth feeding the crowd, a living sign of the present reign of God. It seems to me that each of these witnesses has a part to play in our lives. Each of them speaks to certain moments in time, certain circumstances or events that we experience. 
We all know what it is to be filled with an awareness of the eternal promise of God. We all know what it is to lose track of that promise, or to forget it, or to live as if it had never been made in the first place. And we all know what it is to be fed by Jesus, to receive the gift of a sign pointing toward that eternal promise and the God who made it. We all know what it is to be filled with an awareness of the eternal promise of God, to be overcome by wonder at the size of God's generosity, at the breadth and depth of God's love for the whole world, and to marvel at the fact that that generosity and that love include us in their scope. An astonishing gift, that awareness. Impossible to describe adequately in words. It's like catching your first glimpse of the Grand Canyon or the nighttime sky, only, only so much bigger. Our mouths open, and before we know it, we're singing some song of praise. We're chanting some ode to joy and lifting our hands as if to grab hold of this, this central mystery that God loves us and always has and always will, and that God will go to any lengths, any lengths necessary to bring us safely home, to gather us at the table, to feed us, not just us, but the whole world, all the nations, everyone invited to come and see, to come and eat, to eat and be filled. We all know what it is to be filled with an awareness of God, of the eternal promises of God. We all know what it is to lose track of that promise, or to forget them, or to live as if that promise had never been made. This is not something we're proud to admit. Our faith is, after all, what defines us. So forgetting the promises made to us is like forgetting that we're mammals and so need air to breathe, or like forgetting that we're mortal and are time-limited. makes no sense for us to forget, but forget we do. We lose track of all that we've been given. Perhaps it doesn't meet our most pressing concern. Perhaps it's overshadowed by some great need. Perhaps it's faded into some vague background, like an old story that we used to love but can't really remember why. We forget, we lose track, and so begin to live in that forgetfulness, to live off track, to live as if there never was a promise to begin with. We're lured away by other promises, tempted by food that doesn't really satisfy, spending wildly on things that we really don't need. We all know what it is to lose track of those promises, or to forget them, or to live as if they'd never been made. And we all know what it is to be fed by Jesus to receive the gift of a sign pointing us back toward those eternal promises and the God who made them. Now, for some of us, communion serves as that sign, a literal eating and drinking at the table of Christ, a small but powerful taste of something impossibly large just off there in the future, a present-day manifestation of the already but not yet altogether reign of God. For others of us, that feeding comes through the hands of loved ones and friends, family and kindred spirits, and if we're truly blessed, at the hands of those who either are or ought to be our enemies. The sharing of a meal that is more than a meal, a table that is bigger than it has any right to be, an experience of blessing so profound that it must come, it must come from the hands of Christ. Or maybe it's not literally food that nourishes us. Maybe it's some small movement of the spirit that fills our hearts or some gesture of kindness that reveals a deeper regard or some little leap in our hearts that tells us that God is all around us, all of them, each of them, signs of those larger eternal promises of God. We all know what it is to be fed by Jesus, to receive the gift of a sign pointing us back toward those eternal promises and the God who made them. We know all of these things. We have lived them. The awareness 
the forgetting, the little signs that help us remember all over again, the awareness, the forgetting, the little signs that help us remember all over again. These are the movements of the life of faith, the awareness, the forgetting, and the little signs that help us remember all over again, the movements of the life of faith. We could wish that it were not so. We could wish that the forgetting never happened, that we always remembered and always stayed true to the promises, that we could somehow avoid the plight of Paul's compatriots, that forgetfulness that somehow serves to whittle the promises down to something we can handle, manage, control. We could wish that all away. The losing track, the forgetting, doubting, the taking for granted, the futile return to a more manageable way of being, the return to the predictability of a life that is still held captive to death. We could wish that all away, but wishes don't often come true. Not where I live, they don't. Where I live, there remain these movements in the life of faith, movements that are as old as the book of Genesis, promises made, promises forgotten, promises remembered, promises made, promises forgotten, promises remembered. These are the movements of the life of faith. I don't mean to suggest that this is a good thing or that it's the way it's supposed to be. If all were right with us and with the world, there would be no forgetting. There'd be no need for reminders if all were right with us and with the world. But we'd always remember the promises and we'd be found standing right where we belong, where we belonged all along, being fed and cared for by the tender mercies of God, surrounded by people of every nation on earth, the known and the unknown alike, if all were right with us and with the world. But it's not. It's not all right with us. It's not all right with the world. We do forget. We do lose track. We do all too often live as if the promises had never been made, as if they'll never come to pass. We do live that way. Way too much of the time we do. And so this invitation to hold these three witnesses together, the witness from Isaiah, the witness from Paul, the witness of Jesus as revealed by Matthew, three movements of the life of faith, and a word, a witness, a gospel for each one of them. This is the third to the last time I'll preach here at East Chestnut Street. In other words, I preach today and then I twice more before we leave here to go to Madison Mennonite Church. In other words, it's getting harder to ignore the elephant in the room, the elephant that looks a bit like a moving van. In other words, it's probably just about time for me to give some last words of encouragement and benediction. In other words, well, let's just say my time here is almost done. In other words, time to speak up. So what I'm about to say and what I intend to say in the next few weeks, uh, two weeks, should be considered uh, equal parts preaching and praying, reflecting on the scripture with this congregation in mind, and also sharing with you my prayer for you as our ways part. Now, one of the things that you all have taught me, uh, whether intentionally or not, is that it really is okay to tell the truth. Fairly simple. Nah, not so much. It really is okay to tell the truth, that we don't need to sugarcoat or spruce up or cover over the various warts and flaws and failings that we each carry around with us every day. You've taught me that faith is not a pumped-up, name-it-and-claim-it sort of thing, pretending ourselves into the kingdom of God, that it's not wishful thinking on steroids. You've taught me, too, that faith is not a fragile thing or that it need not be perceived so. That faith is not about everything being all right or turning out all right or, as Barry reminded us last week, uh, everything being perfect. 
Faith is not threatened by doubt or by a lack of evidence, but can be energized by doubt and requires no proof. Again, you've taught me that it's okay to tell the truth, to admit that all is not well all of the time, and sometimes not even most of the time. The truth is we all experience these movements in the life of faith. It's sometimes we stand on the mountaintop, right? And we see the vast expanse of God's promises for us and for the world. And sometimes we stagger through the valley of the shadow of death and cannot see past our own fear. And sometimes we bump into a little grace. And so remember that mountaintop vision. You've also taught me to keep my eyes peeled for those little moments of grace, those small signs of that much larger reality. An important and I think necessary discipline to develop the ability to stand in the middle of forgetfulness and catch some glimpse of the promises that wakes us from our stupor and sets us moving again. The ability to notice that even in the valley of the shadow of death, Christ is with us, if only in a little cool water or a little green grass. You've taught me how to keep my eyes open and so not despair when that larger vision occasionally slips beyond the horizon. And together we have seen so many signs, so many such small signs of that larger promise. We've learned to notice the hand of God moving among us and in our world, to notice the slightest trace of grace, to bear witness to the Spirit's presence, to be nourished and to nourish. It may well be that the thing that best describes the faithfulness of a congregation is this ability to see the small signs of God's promises. Of course, we all long for the grand vision We strive to remember and to never forget, and someday we won't have to work at either of those anymore. All forgetting will be done as we enter completely into the fullness of the promise. But in the meantime, in the meantime, where we live, in this time and place where we live, we need to develop and maintain this capacity for detecting the presence of the Christ among us, the ability to see in that little taste of bread, and that little sip of wine, the everlasting promise of abundant life in the presence of God in all the world. The ability to see in the hand of a stranger the very power of God to redeem all that is lost. To detect in the sound of laughter the voices of the angels. To feel in tears shed from love the healing stream of God this capacity to see small things, small signs in this in-between place where we live, between the awareness of the promise and our tendency to forget, this capacity is essential, I think, and is a mark of faithfulness. And it is, too, I believe, a mark of East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. So, here's my prayer, that you will keep on developing that capacity to see something larger than life in the smallest of signs, that you will continue to practice truth-telling, naming your tendency to forget, and so calling forth those witnesses among you who can point to those small signs that you might otherwise miss for your forgetting. It's my prayer that you'll teach your children how to see what you see, and that you'll not try to protect them from forgetting by pretending that, well, you never do, but that you'll instead be honest with them, and give them opportunity to point the way as they are able and to seek the witness of another when they themselves have lost track. It's my prayer that you'll keep on doing for each other what you've done for me, revealing what it means to live faithfully 
in this in-between time and place, always, always, always keeping our eyes, our minds, our ears, our hearts open for the presence of the Christ, even in the smallest of ways. We live somewhere between the perfection of the promise and the inevitability of our forgetting. Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose hand we receive a taste of that promise, the antidote to our forgetting. God make it so. Amen.